Гуща лубезны совсем не под пару. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Knot. That's spelled E-U-R-A. K-N-O-T, or to youranot.org and find that patron button and help us out and become a monthly patron. So, Rusana, this week we have a rerun of an interview I did for a series at Reese called Nature's Revenge way back in the before times in spring 2021. I mean, anything before February 2022 feels like the before times. So it's an interview with Paul Josephson and Cheryl Corrado on Sakhalin and the Arctic. And just to be honest to listeners why we're doing a rerun, well, for our Far East series, we did have a plan of rerunning a few interviews that in our catalog that pertain to the Far East. But we're, we were going to run this one, but we decided to move it up because we didn't finish the episode we were going to release. So that episode will come out next week. And this week we have this episode. So why don't you tell us a bit about how you see this interview fitting into the Far East series? This is the first out of two episodes on Sahalin. Hopefully I will finish my episode on Sahalin in a timely manner. So the central theme of this episode is this double vision of Sahalin, and we could say more broadly, the Far East. On the one hand, it's a land of opportunity. It's the Russian manifest destiny. It's where the future of Russia lies. And on the other hand, it's an enormous burden It's an undeveloped, unproductive, sparsely populated land that is, yeah, financially financially burdening on um, the central government. And as I was listening to this episode again, it struck me how familiar this narrative is from my own dissertational fieldwork. This double vision of the Far East is very much present today. And I'm not sure what the origin of this imagery is, but it's definitely very persistent. So much so that back in 2013, Putin on one of the conferences said that Siberia and the Far East are the national priority for the 21st century. That's what started this whole developmental boom in um, the Russian Far East. And and this interview looks at Sakhalin all the way into, you know, back to the 19th century, where it already had this vision of a, a nature to conquer and to transform and a harsh place for conquest. And I should also point out the other half of this interview deals with the Arctic, which I think has similar visions of conquest and fighting nature and extracting resources. So both Sakhalin and the Arctic play this, this role. So... Well, why don't we uh, introduce our guests and jump into the interview. Paul Josephson, the author of 13 books, is professor of history at Colby College. A historian of big science and technology, he conducted archival research in Arctic regions while working on his monograph, The Conquest of the Russian Arctic. 
His most recent book is called Chicken, a history from farmyard to factory. He's working now on a global nuclear environmental history. Cheryl Corrado is an associate professor of history and history program director at Pepperdine University. She's published articles on the environmental history and historical geography of the Imperial Russian Far East in a variety of academic journals in English and in Russian. And she's currently working on an annotated collection of letters written by a Red Cross sister serving in the Sakhalin penal colony. Here's Paul Josephson and Cheryl Corrado. So Cheryl and Paul, I'd like to start by just having you both briefly outline the focus of your research, in particular how it pertains into our discussion today. Uh, Cheryl? I am not a pioneer in this field. I kind of came into this accident. I'll get into that later, I'm sure. Um, so this research on environmental history grew out of a dissertation on the Sakhalin penal colony, so 1850s to 1905. And at that point, I was essentially trying to view Russian colonization through a lens of colonialism or, or even what we would think of as the new imperialism of the late 19th century. Um, and Sakhalin in particular didn't and doesn't fit the typical of Russian eastward expansion. It was an island, so it wasn't connected to the mainland, although four miles away at its closest point. Uh, but even more importantly, for most of the penal colony's existence, its connection to European Russia was primarily by sea, through the Suez Canal, around India, through the tropics, China, Japan, and then they arrived at Sakhalin. So the experience of exile to Sakhalin or any sort of colonial officials Assigned to Sakhalin had a lot more in common with colonization of Asia, Africa, perhaps more so than Siberia. You know, the big question was Sakhalin, Russia. I mean, if it's this island connected, not just did Sakhalin belong to Russia, but was it Russia? What made it Russian? What is Russia anyway? And I found a lot of those questions were addressed in terms of how did Russians understand Sakhalin nature? How did they perceive the environment? Um, their descriptions, when you'd read them, were generally in terms of how similar to Russia it was, different, whether they thought Russians could settle there or should settle there, um, the root views of science. I mean, anyway, a lot of this, well, I'll get into this. But, um, yeah, that's kind of where my research was going, is trying to understand Russia through the lens of what Russians were trying to do on Sakhalin. I would say that I got into this work looking at Russian Arctic through my interest in the history of big science and technology and trying to get a sense ultimately of how uh, the Soviets, who embraced an urban proletarian Marxist ideology, uh, intended to overlay what they viewed as relatively empty spaces with an extensive urban industrial infrastructure. I've always been interested in the intersection between nature, technology, and humans, uh, but that was sort of in the back of my mind. And I found myself in Akademgorodok in Western uh, Siberia, Novosibirsk, uh, writing a history of Akademgorodok and thought that I'd really like to go further north and see what it was like there. Eventually, a moving field trip with Russian and, and other graduate students, and then a Fulbright in Archangel, uh, 
pushed me further into the Arctic so that I could visit places I know that some of our audience uh, members have attended as well. So, um, you know, I do like to write every once in a while uh, uh, about something that's uh, perhaps less compelling than the former Soviet Union, like chickens. But I always come, I always come back uh, to it. And for this uh, study that I did, I realized that I couldn't focus on all of the Russian Arctic. I mean, that's one-fifth of the Russian land mass is north of the Arctic Circle. Um, so I focused mostly on the uh, western part, uh, also where I could more easily get archival access. So let's say as far as uh, the as far as the Yenisei River Delta, but but mostly the Russian uh, Northwest. Uh, Cheryl, I, I was uh, struck by this issue of is Sakhalin Russian, and and you know back to this constant constant question that I think a lot of us deal with is, is what is Russia, uh, including Russians themselves. And I'm also curious, Paul, if, if in terms of the Arctic, if you had a similar impression of this question and doing your research of like, what makes this Arctic region part of Russia? But Cheryl, first, can you talk a bit more about that relationship between this kind of teasing out, how does Sakhalin become Russian, if at all? What I found was, and this really actually surprised me, that even by the decade, you'd see major changes in terms of how people understood well, Sakhalin, obviously, but then, you know, what is Russia? What can Russians do? What do Russians want to do? What do Russians want to be? Where is Russia? And I will point out, when I say is Sakhalin Russian, I mean, is it Russia? Does it, is it part of Russia? Not, is it a distant territory that Russians happen to have occupied? So what I found, um, so for example, 1840s and 1850s, the explorers tended to describe Sakhalin in very positive terms. It would be easy to settle. It was rightfully Russian. God has given it to us. Isn't this wonderful? You know, this whole, I mean, almost manifest destiny. It just, it, it's ours. Within a decade or within two decades, for sure, the middle of the great reforms, a completely different story. Colonization wasn't going quite as well as hoped. Sakhalin's natural environment was difficult to settle, um, but no problem. Modern science, we can do this. We can settle it. It's our duty to do so. Give it another decade. Okay, so by now we're getting into this was a penal colony at that point. Um, Sakhalin's nature wasn't merely difficult. It was hostile. Um, the land wasn't Russian at all. It wasn't the fault of Russians that colonization wasn't working. Sakhalin itself was the problem. It doesn't it doesn't like us. And then finally, again, you're jumping ahead another decade or so. The Russo-Japanese War is threatening Russia's position on Sakhalin. You see this last effort on the part of a handful of people to create this new vision of Sakhalin as wealthy. It can save Russia from its troubles. Yes, it's difficult, even hostile, but, but we can do it. We're rational. We're scientific. We can, we can do this. So it's very much an issue of what can we do? What are we capable of? Not only what is Russia, but then what are we as Russians capable of? And who are we as people? And where are where do we belong as people? Do you see like, is it, do you have like a general explanation as to why you have these ebbs and flows in the relationship between kind of like, this place is horrible, uh, this place is ours, uh, well, we can't do anything about it, but it's not our fault. Like how does, what causes these shifts? 
If you're going to ask, okay, let's say if you're going to ask most of the Russians who study this, they'll point to the really obvious causes. Look, this person or this group went here and tried this. It didn't work. After that, people started you know, viewing Russia much more negatively. Or this person arrived in the summer. It was beautiful. Therefore, Russia is, or Sakhalin is wonderful. I agree with that to an extent, but the pattern is just bigger than that. What you're seeing here is a Crimean War, introduction of the great reforms, modernization, disillusionment with reforms. Um, and then this attempt at the end, you know, 1904, 1905, let's try to rescue Russia. And that's a potential to do that. I see. So it follows these kind of patterns of, of, I mean, back to this question of who are we as, you know, what is Russia? Who are we as Russians? It, it kind of reflects that. It does way more than I had expected. I had not looked for that. That was that was actually a big surprise to me. Right, right. Because considering the the place is so kind of remote in terms of the center of uh, the political center of the country, uh, Paul, do you see a similar wrestling over the Arctic and the Arctic regions in Russia? Well, I think what we're dealing with in the czarist regime, uh, the former Soviet Union, and uh, Russia today, in one form or another is uh, a political leadership trying to establish and hold on to an ever larger empire. And increasingly, especially under the Soviets, although you see the roots of this in the Tsarist period, uh, a, a polity based on the effort to exploit uh, very extensive resources that are far from Moscow, far from Petrograd, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, but are very valuable and important for uh, economic, uh, military, and other reasons. Um, so if there were difficulties in establishing a Slavic or even more so Russian dominance over the far north, uh, I think that uh, by the time of the Soviet period, there was certainly uh, the will to do so. And uh, if exploration began uh, in a significant fashion in the late 19th century, un under the Soviets, it became uh, a miraculous and heroic and often very sad effort to control these areas for a variety of reasons. So it, I think that there is this view that it's ours, it belongs to us, a view as in many empires of the world of manifest destiny, the people who live there don't improve the land, therefore they don't really have as much right to it as we are who are modernizers and understand its true value. So whether it's the patrimony of the czars or the patrimony of the commissars, it becomes an area of colonization and development with uh, an effort really to secure the rich, extremely rich natural and mineral resources for present and future generations. And you can look at, uh, in fact, the in-migration, uh, especially in the Soviet period of people uh, from uh, the other republics, uh, largely of Slavic background, but also other peoples as well. Um, into, uh, the into the period of the collapse of the Soviet Union when you had actually significant out-migration and now economic development more on a shift 
work method. Um, it's a fascinating story. It is an empire story. And uh, I notice once again that a number of the people listening today have written about this and, and uh, contributed to our understandings of internal imperialism, which is what I would call it. Paul, you mentioned natural resources, and this is a driver, I would imagine, I mean, this is a driver for expansion for for most empires. Um, but I'd like you to go into more detail with this, particularly one of the, the aspects that both of you share in your respective regions is not only the, the need to harness natural resources, but also the the role of, of the penal system as a form of expansion, as a form of colonization. Paul, can you talk about that relationship between extraction, but also using penal colonization or penal labor to do that extraction? Yeah, let me just say, uh, since I have a very bad uh, sense of humor, that I never use penal labor in any of my exploitation at my summer place. I, I think it's wrong. But, uh, you know, Russia today, uh, in the Russian Federation today, something like 11% of national income comes from uh, the Arctic Basin or the Arctic region, 22% uh, of Russian exports from that region. The reserves of oil and gas and so on that are being developed and untapped, more than 90% of the nickel, the cobalt, 60% of the copper, 96% uh, of the platinum group, uh, all of these things, significant contributions from oil, gas, and coal. So. Um, that, that's worth money even in a socialist system under Stalin. And to develop those resources, uh, yes, indeed, uh, there, the uh, authorities used uh, the gulag system, and they also used uh, Glob Sevmor Put, the uh, main administration of the Northern Sea Route, which was kind of a, a, a magnificent commissariat, more powerful than all of the others. And these groups, the ministries, formerly commissariats, Glavsevmarput, and uh, all the other groups with economic interests in the north had access to gulag uh, labor, uh, which they used and exploited for building roads, for mining, uh, for forestry endeavors, for building entire cities. If you look at the uh, uh, Kola Peninsula that Andy Bruno writes about, um, it's, it's one of uh, using forced labor to extract the value from the nether regions of, of the earth. And many of the corporations in Russia today, in fact, have in some sense, in one way or another, gulag roots. Uh, if you go back far enough and you look at this petrochemical facility on this river, well, it was built by slave laborers in the 1940s or 1950s in the post-war years, uh, that type of thing. So it, it's clearly a system that developed resources on the backs of prisoners. Russia has the most urban north in the world. Many of those urban centers were built by prisoners sent there who were la later freed, uh, became conscious Soviet citizens, uh, but that's kind of a messy story, I would say. Uh, Cheryl, how about in, in Sakhalin's case, since you focused on the, the prison system there? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people tend to assume that the Sakhalin penal colony and Siberian exile in general is simply the, you know, the logical predecessor to the Gulag. And I will actually kind of argue that's not the case. 
that there were some sig- really significant differences. So if you look at why Sakhalin was colonized, for example, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. It was actually a very happy convergence of multiple factors, the geopolitical situation, some economic concerns. I mean, obviously the resources. But one thing that a lot of people don't think of or don't realize is the crisis well, in the penal system in Russia and the Siberian exile system in particular. So we're talking, you know, 1860s, 1870s, 1850s even. There was a lot going on in the Pacific. China had been opened up to trade with the West. Japan had recently been opened up to trade with the West. There was the gold rush. So you got ships going back and forth from North America. If Russia didn't settle Sakhalin, you know, they were afraid they'd lose it altogether. And this was all the more important because of its resources, this huge, huge, huge amount of excellent coal. And there was a big market for the also furs, also forests, fish, other sea products. It was predicted that colonization of Sakhalin would save Siberia from whatever. And then, of course, the problem with this is who's going to colonize? And they found what they thought was a perfect solution, the criminals. Prison reform was an important part of the great reforms of Alexander II. The Siberian exile system was overcrowded, it was backward, it was ineffective. Sending criminals to Sakhalin was going to solve all of those problems. It would relieve the overcrowding of the Siberian exile system while providing labor for people to exploit all of these wonderful resources, it would establish a Russian presence on Sakhalin and and in the Far East. But even more importantly, it would give the criminals a chance to for rehabilitation and a new life. I mean, that was that was the original vision. It was very much part of this prison reform, these prison reform efforts uh, in Europe in the 1870s. It was supposed to become a flourishing colony following the example of Austria. You know, whether it's, it's it, you know, the extraction of these natural resources uh, or the reform of the penal system and allowing prisoners to rehabilitate themselves in a variety of different ways, you're still going to incredibly environmentally inhospitable places, right? So, uh, Cheryl, how was nature viewed then in, in this larger project of like turning, you know, to go along with what you said, turning Sakhalin into a Russian Australia. What was the attitude towards nature? It's hard to answer that question because it was so varied. You will certainly see, especially kind of more by the end, it's wonderful that Sakhalin is so difficult because, you know, these are actually prisoners and it's suitable for them to punish. At the same time, I mean, look at it somewhat objectively. Sakhalin is as far south as Italy. It's got a really long growing season. I mean, shoot, they've got bamboo and grapes growing in the South. It's not supposed to be difficult for all of the, the, the measures. It's supposed to be wonderful. And then the fact that it was so hard really was a surprise. But let me read a quote. One of the earlier explorers, this is Voyan Rimsky-Korsakov, the brother of the, expo- of the composer, approaching by sea from the South, and I'm, I'm quoting him, There was no trace of homes or cultivation, but the locality didn't look like wilderness. If someone were to be shipwrecked on the shore, like Robinson Crusoe, of course, in the summer, 
At least the appearance of the surroundings would not arouse despair. What forests and what abundance? How many fish in the rivers and salmon? Is there anything that Sakhalin doesn't And I love that quote because that really does show what people were at least hoping and thinking, believing earlier in the colonization project, the penal colonization project. But then you can can contrast that, for example, with Anton Chekhov, the most famous visitor to the penal colony, who wrote about the nature that was truly pitiful. No pines, no oaks, no maples, only sad emaciated arches. Signs of the foul, marshy soil and harsh climate. I was in hell, represented by Sakhalin, and in heaven, that is, on the island of Ceylon, after he had left. I just like those quotes, and I've got a ton of others, but just showing how it changes over time. And, and, and Paul, what about for the Arctic? How was nature understood or conceptualized in the efforts to harness its, its space and resources? Well, there's a certain kind of romanticism that went into the conquest of the Russian Arctic. Uh, on the one hand, uh, people looking at, uh, considering that they were facing vast, empty, inhospitable places, uh, the kinds of things that we can imagine. And surely in the, uh, in the taiga, it's an Arctic uh, uh, and in the, in the tundra, it's an Arctic desert. So there's a certain kind of romanticism connected with we went to a very difficult place and we conquered it. But uh, that's kind of misleading because people, um, all sorts of in, in indigenes live in the far north. And then many of the people who went to the north, uh, even in the gulag, were scientists who studied and made sense of the different climate. Uh, that they encountered, who contributed to world knowledge about oceanography, wind currents, ocean currents, uh, etc. There were drift stations that uh, intrepid Soviet explorers uh, floated on through the Arctic from the 1930s until uh, there was a brief interruption during World War II, of course, but until uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the budgetary and economic crisis of the 1990s. So you have people in the Russian North who are settlers or conquerors or exploiters of natural resources who uh, come to grips with the very difficult climate and uh, they built cities. Uh, it was a very expensive endeavor. Uh, they had to subsidize this uh, extensively in order to make it possible to extract the resources, to get people to move to these cities, to Mormonsk and Manchegorsk, and uh, if not by making them prisoners first, and Norilsk and Salikhard uh, uh, and so on. So they made it kind of comfortable within the limits of a Moscow-Leningrad worldview. Um, I, I have learned, by the way, from this experience that uh, my limit for going for a jog is minus 30 Celsius. After that, it's just really unpleasant. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, Paul, you raised two issues that I want to turn to. The first, of course, is, you know, these were not empty spaces. The indigenous peoples lived in both of these areas. Um, so can you address this issue of the indigenous population and how their lives were 
impacted and transformed by Russian colonization? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, this is a complex and disturbing story, but uh, for me, what seems most interesting is the contrast between uh, the 1920s when uh, Soviet social scientists, anthropologists, linguists, and others worked with local people. Uh, they brought medicine. They brought veterinary science. Uh, they established schools. Uh, they helped to create written languages. Many people of the North uh, did not have written languages. And so some of this you can look at as being uh, somehow also a tool of conquest, that these uh, seemingly uh, on the surface, entirely positive things enable uh, control and subjugation as well. But in the 1920s, one gets the sense that there was an effort nonetheless uh, to use these things for the good of all peoples, a kind of a Leninist view of, of uh, the multinational Soviet empire. But from the 1930s, uh, the local people had to succumb to Stalinist dictates collectivization of reindeer herding was forced on uh, these people who were none too pleased about it. They were required to respond to plans and uh, monthly and weekly plans. They had to pay attention to clocks and uh, that had never had a place in their lives. And so, of course, in some sense, they became much more productive, uh, but they were mistreated and abused even as the reindeer were producing more meat for the urbanizing northern centers and more uh, uh, fur and other materials for uh, clothing and whatnot that could be sold or brought to Moscow, Leningrad, and elsewhere. Um, ultimately, if the Stalinist, um, if the Stalinist dictates, uh, which were inhuman and led to revolts uh, and led to uh, NKVD armed guards tracking down uh, Nanette's reindeer herders who just couldn't take it and, and uh, revolted against Stalinist authority. I think in the Thaw years, from the Khrushchev years onward, there was a much more healthy relationship, although one that had changed the original lifestyles. But at that time, uh, the Russian occupiers, colonizers, looked at these people as being quaint and simple. Um, they were a tolerated presence, uh, in, but within Moscow's reach. They were no longer uh, dangerous. Uh, they were part of the natural landscape. And sometimes they helped in Moscow's search for natural and mineral resources. And I must admit, I was uh, surprised when, when I heard many times uh, from uh, officials in uh, the Russian North uh, how they too shared these views of uh, people as being quaint and backwards, even into the end of the 20th century. And if I can say just one more thing about this, uh, under uh, the current uh, government of uh, the Putin administration with the redoubled efforts to establish uh, uh, military bases and also to exploit as quickly as possible oil and gas and other resources that uh, the uh, Nenets, Ivenk, and other people are under threat again from the environmental devastation that 
is happening and will be left behind no matter if Gazprom uh, promises to do a clean and good job of things. Uh, Ashara, what about the in- indigenous population of Sakhalin? For the Russian period, Russians paid surprisingly little attention to them. And again, if you remember that I started this research looking, you know, at this as colonialism, so I fully expected a civilizing mission that I, I didn't find. Um, they ignored them. The indigenous people were nomadic, so they kind of stayed out of the Russians' way. They're mentioned casually in a number of ca- accounts, but seldom taken seriously. It was kind of assumed that they were uncivilized, irrelevant. Russian civilization is going to p- prevail anyway. In fact, a, a quote I like, and I'm sorry, I've just got lots of great quotes about Sakhal in here, but the head of the main prison administration, Alexander Petrovich Salomon, in 1901, stated explicitly that the presence of the indigenous people on Sakhalin was irrelevant. There weren't very many of them, a few thousand, and they would soon go extinct anyway. Okay, now in practice, uh, there were a few exceptions. Russians claimed briefly that the Japanese were exploiting the Ainu in the south as kind of this. They used them as pawns in order to try to support their claim to the land. They gave that up really quick when the Ainu sided with the Japanese against the Russians. Um, Later on, the indigenous Neef were offered three rubles a head for um, returning escaped convicts to the penal colony, dead or alive. And I actually have never read about that actually happening, but they were promised. Don't know how often convicts were returned. Um, But in terms of the rest of the population... um, I guess there are reports of Russian of alcoholism, perhaps, as brought in by the Russians. The Russians, of course, took the best spots, so often where the food supply was was easiest, depleted the sable population, for example, some of the good fishing spots. At the same time, and I think this is interesting, I mean, the numbers of the indigenous population didn't in- go down all. And in fact, I remember being surprised in the early 2000s, recent, but that the numbers were still the same. You know, it really hadn't changed. So yeah, life got harder, but there wasn't this attempt to either exploit them or civilize them you see in the Soviet period. I'm, I have to say I'm quite surprised by that, just because... Me too. Sure. Yeah, because of the other efforts in the other parts of the Russian Empire. Um, the second issue that, that you, you alluded to, Paul, that I want you both to discuss is the role of science and, and the, the role of scientists as both pioneers, as colonizers, but also as people who try to transform and conceptualize these areas. Cheryl, what role does scientists play in the story of Sakhalin? Scientists were behind everything. Everything had a scientific basis. You know, they would send expeditions of scientists to measure rainfall and quantify the, the temperatures and the harvest and the, the this and the other thing. I mean, this is was very, very well documented. It was all that this as you know, a state project of colonization coming right out of the great reform modernization. So you have this relatively small number of very well-educated scientists deciding what was going to be best for Sakhalin. And then this much larger number of officials and people on the ground ignoring it. 
So for various reasons, sometimes, well, sometimes the scientists simply were out of touch with reality. You know, they had their numbers, but they didn't live there necessarily. But sometimes the local officials had their own agendas. Sometimes it was simply inconvenient to do, to follow the scientific plans. Sometimes they were trying to press the authorities and so they fudged the numbers or a watermelon from Vladivostok to claim that they had grown it there. So building these Pachomkin villages of sorts. Um, by the 1890s, people had lost faith in science altogether, at least in terms of, of Sakhalin. And I think you can say that more broadly to a certain extent as well. So we think of Anton Chekhov as a writer, but he was also a medical doctor. Um, and when he visited Sakhalin, his goal was to try to quantify everything, study it very scientifically. He was going to write a medical dissertation based on his research on Sakhalin. And his conclusions were simply that it didn't work. Sakhalin isn't quantifiable. Sakhalin doesn't succumb to science. It was impossible to collect data. People refused to cooperate. Nature, nature refused to cooperate. Nothing, you know, it didn't seem to follow the rules. Uh, so it was, it was interesting that while it was very much attempted, and then again, 1904, 1905, again, this renewed attempts, generally people became very disillusioned with the idea of applying Sakhalin, science Sakhalin. It's kind of a bulwark against modernity itself. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, Paul, where does the, uh, you know, you've, you've written several books on, on R Russian and Soviet science. Where does the Arctic, Arctic fit into the, the history of science in, in the Soviet Union? Well, it's a different story than the one of conquest and development in the 19th century that Cheryl tells us about. Because with the Soviets coming to power, you have conscious state efforts uh, working together with scientists who may not have liked the Bolsheviks but welcomed support for their research efforts. Uh, a burgeoning numbers of scientists, engineers, uh, doctors, uh, veterinarians, and so on, uh, finding the opportunity to work in a way that they hadn't in the Tsarist period. And so we see very, very rapid growth in the number of expeditions, in the number of people entering uh, research programs as university students, being forged in the field, doing research in the far north, and uh, through such organizations that were of czarist heritage, like the Russian Geographic Society, moving into let's call it Arctic studies for lack of uh, a better word at this point. And by the late 20s and early 30s, you have a series of new institutes focused explicitly on Arctic development. Perhaps the most famous is the Arctic and Antarctic Research Institute, which is in uh, St. Petersburg, uh, in Leningrad. And with the assistance of such organizations of Glob Sevmorput, the uh, administration of the Northern Sea Route, actually forcing science onto the Arctic uh, landscape, hand-in-hand uh, -hand with economic development programs. So as cities were coming up in order to develop ore, nickel, copper, uh, appetite, or other kinds of ore, or to develop mines, or to prospect for oil, to work in forestry, any of these things, you have nearby engineering knowledge 
working hand in hand with the commissariats, uh, later the ministries. And each of the uh, commissariats and ministries also had their own research groups within them. So uh, the scientists had a, uh, a wonderful role as uh, they embraced uh, Arctic conquest. Uh, they, they were scientists and engineers like you would meet at Caltech or MIT or anywhere else. There's a problem, we can solve it. Uh, but navigating uh, the problems that came from the Glavki, the ministries and other places where they didn't understand the physical limits was, was a, ch- a challenge. Paul, in this like effort to, you know, on the part of the scientists or even the, in terms of the economic development and extraction, was there a concern or uh, awareness of the environmental impact and imprint that would be left in, in the damage that would be left? I think there's always been an awareness, and especially from the Khrushchev uh, years onward, if you're talking about the Arctic. Um, but it's something that uh, environmental movements and environmental activism was relatively weak, as we all know, until later in the Soviet period. Even after the efforts during the first years, uh, last years of the Khrushchev uh, regime and the early years of the Brezhnev uh, administration to uh, embrace uh, a more modern legal structure for creating and enforcing environmental laws. Um, and it's, it's something that we only learned about really in the Yeltsin period, for example, how significant the damage has been uh, uh, to Arctic regions. For example, the Oblikov Commission that determined the grotesque extent of pollution of radioactive waste that populate much of the Russian Arctic that have to be cleaned up. Um, cleanup is going on, but the amount of the budgets, as far as I can tell, for cleanup is minuscule in comparison to the amount of money being used to open anew and reopen. And no matter how much uh, these massive corporations claim to be paying attention to the environmental consequences of extraction of oil, gas, and ore from the Earth's crust. And sure, what about the, this question for Sakhalin in terms of people's consciousness or even efforts to, you know, not leave so heavy a footprint, environmental footprint? I always think it's interesting, I mean, comparing to Paul, just how completely different the, the Imperial Russian period is from this, you know, big Soviet project. Um, so in Imperial Russia, the environmental impact you know, honestly minimal. In Sakhalin, it wasn't industrialized. There was no widespread environmental pollution. Honestly, I mean, I was thinking about this and I can't think of anyone, there must be some, but I mean, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who in at that time was particularly concerned. There were definitely people who were kind of romanticizing. Well, when I got here 10 years ago, uh, you know, you could just walk through the river and catch fish with your hands, um, which you actually could. There are pictures. Or um, you know, the bears were, you know, driven further into the forest. But because this wasn't, you know, this wasn't industrialized, there wasn't a lot of widespread pollution. I don't think the tigers ever came back after the Russians. 
I was always, it's kind of a, almost a joke because it was always, are there tigers on Sakhalin or aren't there tigers? Are there, aren't there? And evidently were at some point, but they didn't come back after the Russians got there. One thing, though, that I think is, is interesting is that the environmental impact wasn't as strong, not because the Russians were so good at colonizing and so conscientious. I mean, exactly the opposite. It wasn't very strong because the Russians were such bad colonizers. <laughs> you know, they just plain weren't able to have the impact that they would have loved. To have. I mean, it wasn't that they were trying to check if I could just add something here, rather than engage in, in simple bashing of Soviet and post-Soviet environmental practices, if we look across uh, the rest of the Arctic and uh, Canadian uh, achievements, shall we call them, and mistreatment of, of Inuit and uh, what was left behind after the uh, uh, the do the uh, early early uh, uh, distant early warning line. All these military bases along the uh, Canadian Arctic or the Alaska uh, pipeline. Um, you see similar damage to people and ecosystems. And I I often recall uh, the uh, uh, the observation of early settlers to New England who could walk down to the rivers. Uh, in brackish water, of course, and pick lobster off the rock without having to, uh, uh, you know, put traps out in the, in the deeper water. Um, so there, there are no tigers left in New England either, one might say. Finally, you know, I guess you're doing this now in, in this conversation, but, you know, I'll have to ask you to imagine yourself in another place. If you wanted to explain, you know, what are some of the big takeaways that you'd like to highlight about the research that you've done that make you think about the history of Imperial Russia, or in your case, Paul, the USSR differently than you had before? Cheryl? I think the biggest one is probably... The fact that mastery over nature or conquest of nature was nowhere near as important in Imperial Russia, at least in the Far East, I want to speak for all of it, as I had expected. Um, and it really surprised me. I mean, again, I was looking for this and it was not. It didn't have the, the appeal in Russia, certainly not in, in Sakhalin, that it had in the West. So there are a lot of ways that we can fruitfully compare Russian eastward expansion, say, with American westward expansion or what was going on in colonialism elsewhere. But just this language wasn't there. I kept looking for, you know, conquest. I looked, looking for mastery. Very little of that until the Soviet Another thing, though, is that this sheds light on, I think, is Russia's convoluted relationship with the West. And again, I'm going into this trying to prove that Russia isn't different, trying to go against the stereotype of Russia being different, Russia being backward. All of this. And what I'm finding, what I found, I think it's it's a good time to be a post, I guess, because Russia just, it, it doesn't, you can't say it, it does. It's a both and. It's a both and. So much of Russian colonization of Sakhalin was led by Western educated liberals, you know, scientific ideas, all the best theories, all the right data, you know, and yet it didn't work. You know, Russians should have been be able to create this wonderful, productive, efficient colony. 
Um, but I think a big reason why it didn't work is because the people on the ground, there was this disconnect. Um, the ones you know making the policies and the ones implementing them had such completely different worldviews. You know, the not necessarily believing in science, not believing in data, not seeing, understanding the need for for accurate data or for following instruction. They were constantly undermining each other in ways that you perhaps didn't see in the West. And I'm perhaps treading here in you know, water that I shouldn't be in because I don't study the West. But I get the impression that, you know, in the West, in the United States or, or what, you know, even the workers on the ground believed in science, believed in data. Even if they weren't scientists, on Southfield you don't, you don't see that. So it's a really interesting. I mean, that's my best guess at why it failed. I'm trying to figure this out for, you know, more than a decade now. One other really quick thing, though, that surprised me, it's sort of a bigger takeaway, is just how fast things changed. I tend to want to generalize, you know, Soviet Union, Imperial Russia, Muscovy, whatever. And here I'm seeing, you know, huge changes in terms of Russians self-understanding, identity, concept of who they are in a 10-year, in a 10-year you know, period. Or something that's gotten me, made me really much more careful as I'm trying to, to look at history more broadly, not to just assume that if something was 20 years apart, that that's the same, you know, to expect similarities or that that was part of the same, I guess, periodization. Well, I think uh, that's a very difficult question because in some of my uh, work I've I've written that um, the world experience is basically the same. There are stronger states and weaker states. Uh, there more there's more active public participation in uh, addressing environmental concerns and less. And in other work I've argued that it's it's a unique place. <laughs> so um, I will I will repeat again. I think the major takeaways that I have today seeing the what I would argue is a rebuilding of uh, more authoritarian political culture in uh, Russia uh, under President Putin. And that is that uh, Russia is an empire or wants to be an empire, uh, whether it's an internal uh, imperialism or external. Um, it uh, wishes to uh, hold on to control of parts that were traditionally uh, parts of the 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 Russian uh, Soviet Empire, like uh, Crimea, um, President Putin has established, I believe, six new or refurbished between five and six military bases in uh, the Arctic. He sees its political, military, and cultural uh, value, and so I think that environmental concerns, when the idea going forward is. Uh, military security, uh, environmental concerns are always going to be uh, secondary in, in, a, in a big state. Um, I think the Russian government intends through closely controlled uh, public, private endeavors uh, to pursue resource development. It is a resource state in a way that other states uh, no longer are. Uh, and I think that's really the crucial point that uh, many people among the leadership believe that uh, Russia's success comes from its great natural and mineral resources, uh, forgetting sometimes that uh, the thing that attracted all of us to Russian studies, which is uh, 
the Russian intellect, the Russian brain, the, the creativity of the people, um, that this is what really Russia is about. It, it's about the literary types, the ballet dancers, the chess players, the Nobel Prize winners in physics uh, and economics, uh, our friends with whom we've sat at dinner tables from early evening until the next morning talking about the meaning of life. Uh, that's the, that will always be the same. That was Paul Josephson and Cheryl Corrado. Paul Josephson, the author of 13 books, is professor of history at Colby College. A historian of big science and technology, he conducted archival research in Arctic regions while working on his monograph, The Conquest of the Russian Arctic. His most recent book with Polity Press is called Chicken, a history from farmyard to factory. He's working now on a global nuclear environmental history. And Cheryl Corrado is Associate Professor of History and the History Program Director at Pepperdine University. And she has published articles on the environmental history and historical geography of the Imperial Russian Far East in a variety of academic journals in English and Russian. And she's currently working on an annotated collection of letters written by a Red Cross sister serving in the Sakhalin penal colony. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. And as you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to share it on social media and tell your friends and family to listen. Feel free to drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or at EurasianKnot.org and let us know what you think of the new show and the new format. And as always, we'd love to have your support. Uh, the Eurasian Knot is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and we'd like to keep it completely free of paid advertising. So please become a patron and help us keep it that way. So go to EurasianNot.org and find that patron button and sign up. Until next time, bye. Bye.